Appropriate action. Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm Chris Garaffa. And I'm Rachel Hu. We're very happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin. In Argentina, last week, the far right wing libertarian candidate, Javier Millet of the Liberty Advances Party, won 30% of the country's presidential primary, calling for an end to Kirchnerism, which is really a call to end the social programs fought for and won by the Argentinian people. We're going to dive deeper into the analysis of how we got here and what this surge in popularity of libertarianism in Argentina really means and perhaps what it means for people in the U.S. We're joined today by Zoe Pepper Cunningham, co-editor of People's Dispatch, to get a deeper understanding of what these results mean for their respective countries and for Latin America and more. Welcome to the show, Zoe. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So happy to have you on. So I want to get into it. I mean, Javier Millet, he's, I, I've been reading the New York Times article on this, and it's kind of interesting. People are calling him the, the Donald Trump of, of Argentina because he's a television personality and he has these far-right politics. I, I, I think for, for a U.S. audience, I'd love for you to kind of lay the foundation a bit here uh, of how we got here and exactly what this means um, as a, uh, when we're looking at an overall analysis of this election, what this means for Argentina and how it reflects popular sentiments or doesn't reflect popular sentiments. Definitely. Well, I'll just first start by saying that uh, this was he essentially performed very well in what would be, you know, analogous to the primary election. So it's the primary open, simultaneous and obligatory elections. These are called PASO in Argentina, and it's essentially an instance where um, electoral coalitions often put their slate if they're, you know, multiple people running within their coalition and they need to figure out who's going to be the candidate. This is how they decide in the in the PASO. Also, in an attempt to kind of weed out uh, the candidacies that don't have much chance. So you have to get over, you know, a certain percentage. I think it's about 1.5 percent. You have to score over that in order to uh, make it on to the general elections where you actually will have a binding vote. Just to first say that. So it's this kind of primary elections. Uh, but also, you know, more importantly, it's this, it's a moment of that's kind of this temperature check. It's time to see where people are polling, where they're voting. It's a way for the parties to kind of figure out where they need to campaign more, who are the key sectors that they haven't reached, that they need to reach, who are the people that are voting, not voting. And this these pasos were very much uh, that because, you know, people had been uh, expecting a different turnout and Javier Millet against all odds against a lot of people underestimating his candidacy, ended up taking the largest vote share in these elections, which again are not binding, but do give a sense of kind of where, who people are supporting. And the fact that his candidacy had so much popularity is definitely telling. So that is kind of the context within which these elections take place and where really Javier Millet goes from being pretty well known in Argentina and again, still kind of being this political joke to actually being taken seriously in a big way, and uh, especially on an international level. I think people had not heard of him in most of uh, the world, and now they definitely know that crazy hairstyle. They probably know that he was a former tantric sex coach, that he wants to dollarize the economy, that he wants to essentially close the central bank, that he wants to criminalize abortion, he wants to end sex education, he wants to take away rights such as the right to free education, to free healthcare, you know, social services and programs that have been sort of cornerstones of Argentine society. And these 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 proposals uh, are not necessarily what got him uh, the largest vote share. I think that it would be a mistake to say that everyone who voted for Javier Millet necessarily supports his program. I think a lot of people who vote for him, a lot of people didn't vote for a benefit Hugely, I mean, even the elites in Argentina benefit from having free education and their robust healthcare system. But what it does really speak to is kind of the consequence of such a long and drawn out economic crisis in the country and sort of this feeling that there's kind of no option because you had the neoliberal Together for Change coalition that brought Argentina into this current crisis. And then 
unfortunately, the center progressive coalition was essentially unable to extract the people from Argentina from this crisis. And so I think that's really, it, it kind of gave this sort of reading of this rejection of the status quo. And I, I, again, I just say that I think there are a lot of similarities um, between the figure of Trump, maybe the figure of Bolsonaro, but I think that also Javier Miles, also a very uniquely Argentinian example in that it's in a context where uh, it's a country that does have access to rights, that does have many hard-won victories, country that has a high level of social and political consciousness historically, especially because of how hard they've had to fight for the return to democracy that took place, you know, uh, in the 80s following the civic military dictatorship. So it's definitely difficult because he is essentially threatening all of these all of these gains that the democratic pr- process in Argentina's had. Um, and I think that's really that's really what makes it um, a different uh, scenario. Oh, thanks for that, Zoe. It's really um, interesting observations. Um, you know, the New York Times in an article on Millet actually, you know, points out that, uh, you know, he is, you know, they call it hard right or far right. Uh, and it points out that, you know, the fact that these forces have gained what they say is new influence in several powerful nations. Um, that's the, the New York Times and the way they're putting it. They mention the U.S., Germany, France, Italy, Sweden, Finland. Um, while also mentioning slight defeats in, in Spain and, and Brazil. And so seeing, you know, even the New York Times and actually the Guardian as well is using a similar uh, kind of framing for this, um, you know, has been very interesting to me. The And in addition to all the things you mentioned about, you know, just removing people's rights, he thinks uh, we should mention Millet also says that the climate crisis and climate change is a, quote, socialist lie. Uh, is another one of his, pers- you know, perspectives, and so seeing him portrayed, and I've seen the videos. You know, he says he's a Donald Trump, um, you know, Donald Trump supporter. He's a fan of Trump. He uh, has had the Gadsden flag apparently at some of his uh, press events or rallies. We have this thing that's happening where there are, you know, these famous figures from pop culture who become politicians. I mean, we can go back to Reagan with that, but certainly Trump, Zelensky. Uh, and, you know, and now Millet. And I think that says a lot, too, about how people have no faith in in a system and they're they're looking towards the faces and the perspectives that they know, um, you know, from entertainment effectively uh, to, to do that. But and I want to get your thoughts on that, but also ask you about this particular proposal that Millet has that really could be distri- com- extremely disruptive for the Argentine economy. And that is, first of all, getting rid of the central bank. But then also uh, adopting the U.S. dollar as their currency. Uh, wh- what would that What would that mean for Argentina? And what What kind of response has has that gotten? I mean, we've seen that the Argentine that the peso has dropped significantly after the news of of these results. But how how are, how are you looking at the possibility of that happening and what it would mean? Well, I think that that's definitely an accurate observation about kind of these outsiders. It's happened so much over the past decade that we can't call it really an anomaly anymore. It's something that's definitely a fixture of these decaying uh, liberal bourgeois democracies um, where people, you know, they're kind of made to fail. Um, It's not really a surprise that the way that things were going was not going to last, that uh, liberals with their very weak proposals to say they're in support of the people are, you know, in a general sense, are unable to um, actually respond to people's needs. I think the U.S. is a perfect example of that. Um, and then I think in terms of these radical economic proposals, I think in the last week, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, because Millet has really brought it into the public discourse a lot more. Yeah, I think it's responding to this huge challenge in Argentina, it, it, a deep, deep economic and structural issue there, which has to do with the, the peso and how often, how unstable it is. Um, I think this is a question that a lot of economies in the third world face when you build you know, economic autonomy, but still are deeply, deeply linked to the world market. Argentina is an export economy. Um, of agricultural products. And so the price of soy, when they sell it, all of these really impact their 
to maintain the peso at a, at a reasonable rate. I mean, there's so many other factors and I'm definitely not an economist, so I won't go into them. But essentially what has happened in Argentina is over the last several decades, they have seen their money go from worthless to actually worth something to worthless again to one day your your salary can buy you, you know, your ba- basic daily needs to the next day at not being able to do that at all. And so the the idea of dollarization kind of enters into people's minds because, of course, in the imperial core, you have one of the benefits of imperialism is that you have dollar stability. Uh, when you run financial systems and when the world depends on your currency, you're able to actually have a pretty stable currency. And of course, all of the other economic factors, which again, not an economist, can't go into them. But I think the reason that this this proposal comes up is really because the peso has time and time again just been um, subjected to these uh, deep shifts, um, both in the global economy, but also the fact that Argentina has taken out huge loans, huge debts, of course, under Mauricio Macri, the billion dollar uh, IMF loan, which destroyed the economy, uh, which sent their economy into nosedive. I mean, the destruction of national production. There's so many factors there. And that's why this proposal of dollarization is seen as something, well, you know, it's clearly not working. Whatever we're doing now, people are unable to you know, maintain their daily lifestyle, their daily needs. A lot of the economy is already in dollars. For example, the a large part of the extra agricultural exporting uh, economy is done in dollars. The housing market is in dollars. So people are earning in pesos and unable. Uh, if you're a working class person and you want to buy a house, well, good luck, because all of that is actually in dollar value. And it's not you know, super cheap, but it, it's still uh, quite expensive, even given that it's in dollars. And so this is this is where this kind of picks up traction again. But actually implementing this is an entirely different question. And I think it's incredibly difficult process and it it, ne- it won't necessarily solve the deep structural issues that the Argentine economy has. Um, this is not a question of the peso being bad. It's a question of being a peripheral country that exports agricultural goods and having a, a oligarchy and a, a business class that really is is unwilling to actually share its its benefits and its profits with the rest of society and that would rather get rich off of uh, playing the currency market and you know affecting the entire national economy so I think that it's really I think frightening to people um and this this prospect and will he be able to implement it I mean I think so many things people it's it will really be interesting to see what happens but it is definitely not something that can happen from one day to the next and I think there's a lot of interests in Argentina of dominant economic classes that will not let this go forward or are not going to be happy about it so I think that's one of the biggest cards that's up in the air uh, Millet has also said that he would withdraw from UNASUR that all of the closeness that's happened with China under the Frente Todos government, many different um, agreements signed, a currency swap that's been happening, China attempting to help Argentina in its situation of um, the, the currency devaluation. Um, he says that he does not do business, that governments should not do businesses with communists, with socialists. So all of these really important agreements which have actually helped Argentina somewhat survive in these past couple of years uh, would be completely off the table. So there's a lot that's at risk here. I can't. I think it can't be understated. And he said that he will continue paying the IMF loan, and that the austerity measures will even be will be even worse. So, this is extremely concerning because already the people who are in dire straits, the working class people who are unable to eat from one day to the next, uh, would even be further affected by these by these measures. So, it's he's someone who believes that nothing that nothing is a right, everything is a privilege, and you have to work for it. And if not, then uh, you can as much as die because that's essentially his perspective. I mean, certainly. I mean, look at this idea that he wants to move from a public health system, which is what Argentina has it has in a lot of different ways. And I think that it's really interesting that he wants to move and charge people for public health. I mean, that is essentially trying to move in the direction of creating a system that would be like the United States, this kind of just hellhole of private health care where people can't get access to anything. 
with also conditions that are very extreme in, in Argentina. To imagine taking away something that was fought for so intensely by the Argentinian people, like it's going to be felt on a day-to-day basis by everyday regular people. So I, I definitely think that can't go without being underscored just how serious some of these measures will be on the average Argentinian. But I wanted to ask you, Zoe, and this is one thing I, I wanted to kind of understand a bit more too in this, is that I've, I'm trying to understand the base of his supporters because I have seen kind of much like Donald Trump. I, I think when Trump came, it was was voted. There was all of this look, background look into exactly who was voting for Trump. And there was a lot of, of talk about it's, you know, poor white working class people in the United States who are feeling disaffected and disenfranchised. And some of that's true. And a lot of it's not, too. I mean, when you look a little bit more into the numbers around Trump, it tends to be more middle class people. But that's not exactly the case here with Malay. So I'm curious if you could share more about the kind of voter base of who exactly is turning to his politics and his solutions within the Argentinian public. And the other thing I was curious to know about, too, to follow up on something you said, which I'm, I'm really interested by, is also within the ruling parties now or within the ruling class now, the, the wealthy and Argentina in the oligarchy, how people are going to be reacting. Like, how is the ruling class going to react to this? Do you foresee the possibility of, of kind of this the sharp differentiations that create internal divisions? Or is there more of a consensus amongst the bourgeoisie that this is not this is not the direction that they're hoping for Argentina to go and that they'll pull out every stop to stop it? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot to unpack. And I think especially since this vote was a bit of a shock for some, uh, there's been a lot of kind of analyzing the data, processing what happened, kind of trying to think of, you know, what what really led to this situation. Um, and yeah, I mean, as you said, it was there were a lot of foreign working class people who voted for him, a lot of young people. Um, and these are, you know, specifically the people who are most affected by the crisis, uh, people who are working in the informal sector, who don't have stable jobs, um, who essentially grew up in this crisis, maybe having some sense of stability under the Kissinger government, and then uh, rapidly just saw their situation deteriorate. Um, and this is what's called kind of the protest vote in a lot of uh, places. Um, but also important to point out is that uh, these PASO elections uh, registered a historic level of abstention as well. Um, and that also has to be underscored because uh, between abstention uh, those who cast a blank ballot and those who voted for Millet, it's a huge portion of the population. And while, it, of course, it has to be, you know, thought of, you know, considered that people also voted for Millet, I think this really speaks to the fact that there's just a complete disenchantment uh, with the political system. There's a sense of disconnect, uh, a sense that people don't feel like uh, politicians are there to actually serve them. So I think those are uh, really important factors to keep keep in mind. But yes, it's definitely young people, poor working class people, people who are, you know, scraping by every day, you know, really in 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 the thick of it. Um, and I think the reason that maybe they did vote for him is because uh, the only thing that he promises is change. Um, if, if you just look at, of course, this, you know, at, there are many, he promises a lot of things which are insane, but Every single one of them is essentially just this like, we're going to get rid of everything that's happened until now and do something different. And I think that, of course, if you take a more sober analysis and you look at what he does, it's these extreme neoliberal measures. He wants to, you know, intensify austerity. He wants to do a lot of he wants to do a lot of what Macri did uh, during his term in office, but do it more intensely. So, you know, it is is painted as this radical change that he's going to fight for those uh, work people who were working hard. And I think if you're in such a difficult condition and you see that the, you, know, you work, you work, you work, you try, there's no good jobs, there's no nothing, that there has to be another way. And so I think he really speaks to that. Um, and also, it, of course, it has to, the, the magnifying glass has to be kind of turned to the other side and what the Frente de Todos coalition was unable to do. And I think that's maybe even more important because this was, Frente de Todos was was painted as, you know, the possibility after after marketing that he submerged the country into such a billions of dollars of debt under his government. The poverty rates 
level raised to 40% of the population, uh, homelessness increased, unemployment increased, the currency devalued hundreds of percent. Uh, and they said, we're, you know, we're coming back. We know that the Kitchenista policies worked. We're going to confront uh, everything that's been happening. We're going to make things better. But then there were key things that this center-left coalition was really unable to actually follow through on. And one of the big ones was the negotiation of the debt with the IMF. A lot of people felt this was a betrayal, that this was negotiated, that um, now the Argentinian economy uh, is you know, suffering because it is paying back this debt. Um, it was unable to, for example, take more radical measures like appropriating companies. Uh, there was a big dispute early on in the government, the Peronista government, of maybe expropriating an agricultural export company, which had gone bankrupt. And the oligarchy threw a fit and waged this, you know, crazy media campaign. And instead of weathering the storm, the government said, no, you know what, we fold. And little by little distanced itself from these radical proposals that it had run on. And so I think once people see that, they say, well, why, why would I go for that again if we've already tried that and they've already showed that they can't? So I think that definitely has to be taken into account that this protest vote is really against both against both sides. Yeah, that's great. I want to go deeper into what Kirchnerism is as he refers to it, because he did say, as we said in the introduction, he said, we will, you know, we're going to end Kirchnerism. And of course, referring to the former, uh, the former president, uh, Nestor Kirchner, as well as the current vice president, his wife, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner. Um, but when we talk about the rights that you know the economic and social rights that uh, that he would do away with, and and that he you know is calling for for an end to. Um, you know we have to also look at the impact that the depression of you know 1998 to 2002 had uh, really uh, because it was a resistance to that that fought the you know paying the even the idea of paying the, those IMF loans because they were just unaffordable to to the country. Um, and there was, you know, mass mass resistance on the left to that. So I guess what what I'm asking is, when he says Kirchnerism, is he is that reference understood in Argentina to stand for all, you know, any kind of progressive policies and rights that people have? Uh, is that what he's saying, or is he is it a more specific and targeted reference that he's making? Argentinian politics are, are ex- extremely difficult to understand. I lived there for a while and I constantly was like, wow, this is another factor that I, it's just so many things. Um, but Kitsunerismo and Peronismo are some of the two most complex kind of words or definitions or categories. But we can, let's let's try to get in there. So when he says Kitsunerismo, I think he's, of course, referring to this period where Nestor Kitsuner was president where and then uh, when uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner was president. Ahead of these elections, there was a very, very, very intense uh, situation because Cristina had announced that she would be candidate again. And it was sort of, I mean, Cristina, it's it's hard to kind of understand the the mythical power that she kind of has in society. I mean, she's extremely beloved. She was responsible for pulling so many people out of poverty for really empowering people in the country. And so, you know, for many years, there were rumors, okay, Christina's coming back, Christina's coming back. That's kind of the slogan you would hear everywhere. Um, But then when it came time for this last year ahead of the elections, and she was had been vice president, of course, with uh, Alberto Fernandez, which for many people, they believe this was you know, the really, really the reason that he got elected president is because she's such a popular figure and so beloved, kind of akin to the appreciation and love for Evita Perón that exists in Argentina. And so she had, again, there were rumors that she was going to run, but she, like many other uh, Latin American leaders of the first progressive wave, faced a very, very intense campaign of lawfare. Um, and so there were a lot of different corruption cases against her. And in the past year, one just kind of uncharacteristically accelerated or maybe characteristically for the way that lawfare cases work, because they kind of when the justice system doesn't work for somehow they only work for uh, lawfare cases. And so 
there was a pretty harsh ruling against her in a trial that was full of irregularities. The judges conniving with the prosecutors uh, who were also friends with former President Mauricio Lacri. I mean, so many, so many uh, red flags to see it that way in terms of how this actual, this verdict got passed. And many people saw it as just a desperate attempt of the of the elites in the country to make sure that Christina did not come back to power. Because if Christina is back in power, she's someone who has a very, very deep connection with the masses, whereas Alberto Fernandez is from the more centrist, conservative wing of Peronismo. She represents a perspective that's much more intense with the bases. That's She has a deep connection with movements, a deep connection with the people, and that's something they definitely don't want. When this lawfare case was intensifying, she was still announcing, you know, I'm planning to run. Uh, there was a ruling that she was barred from even participating in politics, and there was a assassination attempt against her. And so this combination of things uh, made her essentially withdraw from running, and it was seen as a, a serious setback for progressives in the country. She's sort of this historic moral leader, like many can would say about Lula, for example, one who brings together many, many sectors, who is able to really channel um, the desires and the the aspirations of the people. However, though, because there was a very, very intense lawfare campaign against her, while she does have this uh, sort of appeal to, to many sectors of the masses, to many sectors of society, there's also kind of this impact, like similar to in Brazil, where she's associated with criminality, with corruption, with uh, dirty politics, dirty money, and this whole sort of uh, rejection that as we saw in in Brazil, has is able to really captivate the hearts and minds of a lot of people um, and really turn them against these figures, not because of their policies, but because of these ridiculous media campaigns. So when you're saying, you know, end with Kitsunerism, he and the elites are saying, yeah, we don't want any more of those social policies. But when he's saying it to the people, he's saying they're corrupt. We don't want any more of that. They're dirty. They're involved with these like you know, illicit and criminal things. And it's funny because obviously these are the people who are like deeply, deeply linked with massive crimes. Mauricio Macri, of course, is is responsible for this illegal debt that Argentina still has till today. We'll never see prosecution for it. And in, in terms of how the ruling class is 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 viewing Mile, I think it's it's really it's really divided. Um the the preferred candidate of kind of the conservative Argentina would be Patricia Bullrich, who herself is is also quite conservative and quite on the right. She was the Minister of Security under Mauricio Lacri, um, and she has a sort of tough on crime. But, you know, it's a, it's a right wing that people know. It's not this sort of like erratic guy like Millet, this, this wild card factor that we see in Trump and Bolsonaro, and these people who are just completely throughout the rule book and do whatever they want, it seems. I think it was up to them. They're probably going to rally behind Bulgaritz. There's probably going to be a pretty strong effort um, by these sectors uh, to to support the Bulgaritz candidacy. And I think that's going to make it really hard for the Union for the Homeland Center progressive ticket to to really get anywhere because they're not only going to be fighting against this Millet, who has this massive popularity in society, but they're also going to be fighting against all of the concentrated economic sectors who are going to be rallying I mean, maybe hedging their bets on Millet, but most likely trying to push forward the Patricia Bullrich candidacy. Thanks for that context, Zoe. That was really illuminating because it's just, it's definitely true that I think Argentine politics are in interesting waters to wade in, but it's also why it's so important to get such a thorough breakdown uh, to really get a feel for kind of what people are thinking and feeling and how we kind of uh, arrived at this point. So anyway, based on what you were saying, I think it is kind of an interesting thing to explore uh, the other element in this, too, which I, I think you brought up at the end about how the left forces in Argentina are reacting to this. I'm really curious to know about where the left forces have been in the last few years, kind of where the the kind of push and the pull uh, of politics. How have people how has the left been gaining or losing steam? Because I think, you know, was how was this a very surprising piece of information for them. I mean, people on the progressive left in Argentina to find out that that so many, especially young people, young working class people are interested in Malay's politics. I, I'm wondering how the progressive left is reacting to this 
and kind of what what you see as the kind of the the takeaways so far within the movement to to figure out how to kind of come up against this challenge. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So there was a left candidate progressive forces in uh, in this primary in the Paso. Uh, Juan Graboy was running for uh, Union for the Homeland. Um, he is the representative of uh, the Union for Excluded Workers. He's a longtime activist with workers from the popular economy. And his candidacy was in an attempt to kind of channelize this disaffected youth vote because it is the work of organizations like the Movement of Excluded Workers, of the workers of the popular economy, who really are directly in dialogue with a lot of these people that maybe would have, or maybe their communities or maybe their neighborhoods, who maybe would have voted for Millet because it's these people who are, again, not seeing any or not seeing a significant enough advance or bettering of their current situation who are, you know, again, in the popular economy, have to fight every single day for survival. And there's been a deep insistence from these sectors um, from, you know, the organizations that rallied around the Juan Graboy candidacy to say that now is not the time to move closer to the center. Now is the time to radicalize our proposals. Now is the time uh, to speak directly to the people and not try to appeal to these center sectors who are, you know, clearly not not interested in in what in bettering the people's situation and really are the reason why, you know, the left and progressive sectors are in this situation in the first place. And so there's been a strong push for Sergio Massa, who is going to be the candidate for Union for the Homeland, for him to adopt a lot of uh, these more progressive proposals, uh, committing to guarantee land, home, and work for people. These are the three T's. This was um, a big slogan of the movement excluded workers, Sierra Techo Trabajo. That's a major push, along with other really important social policies. There's a proposal for them to adopt universal basic income. And so I think what the left is trying to do now is, you know, they have to put significant pressure on this center left ticket to to not fall into this trap of of just trying to appeal um, to the middle class, to sectors of the bourgeoisie who are afraid of me. They now is really the time uh, to go back to the people. I think that's exactly what they're going to be doing from now until October and really trying to build these more uh, people centered proposals uh, for this ticket. Um, because you know that's really the terrain they have to they have to to, to fight on. No. Yes, certainly. I, I definitely agree, Zoe. I think one of the things too is you're talking that I'm thinking immediately about. It's good to hear that this is the analysis that that there's a need to to recognize and understand that moving further to really further doubling down on your own principles is the right way forward. And I certainly agree with that. I mean, you know, if anything, we've learned from Trump and from just kind of the crisis of capitalism here in the U.S. and around the world as well, is that the the center just doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't win anybody. I mean, if anything, we've learned from Joe Biden's presidency, which is historically one of the most unpopular presidencies in U.S. history. It's that playing into the center quite literally doesn't work. It creates deeper and more profound senses of disaffection. But of course, in the elite parties and the ruling class parties, they're less interested in kind of reacting to, to what's actually happening on the ground. And frankly, for the Democrats, less interested in actually winning. So I hope to see perhaps that the the, the elite parties, at least in Argentina, react in a, a meaningful way, in a real way that, that recognizes the, the severity of this threat and what this actually could mean for the country as a whole. There, there really is so much in there. But that was kind of my, my immediate thoughts uh, upon hearing this about how, how much centrism just fails in in the face of the crisis of capitalism because that's how we end up at this kind of situation this is the the natural this is the the natural reality either countries go left or they go right when it comes to the absolute failure of the current status quo uh, of the current class society that continues to make sure that poor people stay poor and rich people stay rich and extract profit relentlessly off of the backs of workers i mean this is the inevitable outcome of such a situation being allowed to continue to fester that we're moving to the left or to the right and just Argentina being able to be up in the air right now where it could move significantly to the right. You know, hopefully that's not the case where there is still some time to see. But either way, it's certainly a, a scary prospect, but one that we have to pay close attention to to understand 
how these politics are playing out. But Chris, I know you want to get in here. Yeah, I did want to start zooming out a little a little bit in our discussion because, you know, with the BRICS summit happening August 22nd through 24th in uh, in South Africa, um, we know, you know, for example, that you know Argentina has already applied and then the process has kind of been started uh, in terms of joining BRICS and uh, getting involved, you know, with with BRICS, which could be, you know, a huge opportunity for the country and for the economy. But then at the same time, um, Millet has said, you know, that's not an option. Uh, Patricia, Patricia Bullrich said, quote, we're not going to BRICS. Um, and of course, she was the, the runner up. She got 28 uh, percent in, uh, you know, in the in the polling. And so, you know, it seems at this point now, Zoe, that, you know, basically the application is going to have to be on hold until October when the uh, when the elections happen and, you know, possibly through December at Duke, when it, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the inauguration, the swearing in would be d- tr- traditionally December 10th. But this uncertainty and the delay in the possibility of uh, of Argentina joining BRICS and being able to tap into the strength of this partnership uh, of the BRICS group you know, would be a huge or could be a huge benefit for for the country. And this delay is, I can only see it as damaging, right? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if they, if a Patricia Bulgarito or Javier Millet uh, wins uh, the presidency, I think there is a definite risk of the partnerships and agreements that Argentina has made with China to definitely be at risk. Um, and many of the forward progress that they've made in terms of regional integration. Um, as I said, uh, Javier Millet said they would leave UNASUR. Uh, Mauricio Macri also left UNASUR when he was uh, in in power. So, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of risks there in terms of their ongoing partnerships. But I think a, a big issue is that again, that they can Argentina can kind of remain afloat and continue engaging with these more favorable economic blocks, but there's also a certain level of their national economy that's going to continue creating these crises. So I think that, you know, if they don't join BRICS, if this application gets postponed, if it doesn't happen, I think there also is a question about what are this, what is this application process going to look like? Because this is, of course, a very historic BRICS summit in the sense that there's, I think, over a dozen countries that have applied to join. So I think it still remains to be seen how that how that's going to really play out. Um, what does it look like to have an expanded BRICS? Um, what are the how is that going to work? Is that is that mean grants from the development bank? I think there's a lot of questions there that will be interesting to see what happens. But of course, I think, I mean, the the economic effects in every single realm are going to be negative, and definitely one of them is is this very very important uh, relationship that Argentina has been able to maintain with China. Uh, and with other countries that are not the United States, it's. I mean, yeah, I, I guess it doesn't go without saying, but it's. It's just important to reiterate that this will not be, you know, any advance for the the working people of Argentina, and the fact that austerity measures will get even worse uh, is just is is tragic, really, because the the current situation there is one of of deep distress of uh, of difficulties. Certainly, Zoe. Well, you know, I, I want to turn our attention now to what's going on in Guatemala, mainly because I, I think as we're talking about the, the possible landscape in Argentina uh, of, of seeing a libertarian possibly win uh, this election, we won't quite know, of course, until October. But I, I think as we see across Latin America, this, this, this movement in terms of, of embracing different politics or looking to different solutions, I, I'm curious to hear your take on this uh, news that uh, what, what the New York Times is calling an anti-corruption crusader, um, Bernardo um, Arevalo, who recently won the presidential election. He's going to be the new president. They're calling him a left, uh, a left president and that he won by a landslide victory, uh, supposedly, in, in a runoff election. So I'm curious to know your, your thoughts on this um, presidency um, if, does it really represent the left? What does this really mean for Guatemala? But but really the overall picture um, 
of how this fits into the greater narrative of the politics of what's happening in Latin America. Definitely. Well, I think it's, it goes without saying that the victory of Bernardo Arevalo was definitely historic and really a long time coming, not necessarily him as a candidate, but in the sense of someone who's running on an anti-corruption platform and someone who's not from these traditional parties and representing the traditional interests. Guatemala is, you know, a country where the majority, where a lot of people are indigenous, uh, where a lot of people are poor and working class. Um, and it has been run by white elites. <laughs> so really, it's I mean, it's just this complete contradiction where the people who have run the country have no, uh, I mean, you know, physical uh, you know, similarity and really no shared experience with the majority of the people who live in the country. And for years now, there have been massive, massive, massive mobilizations from the people, from indigenous movements, from peasant movements, from citizens movements in the cities, from feminist movements, um, denouncing kind of the very, very deep corruption that happens in terms of these uh, ruling elites being in office, um, stealing state money, stealing money that should be going to social programs, which Guatemala doesn't have, uh, to supporting the people, to so many other things that it's not going to, to and, you know, politicians pocketing this money, creating corruption schemes, so many different things. There was a UN uh, ordained corruption investigation committee, and that was disbanded by one of the former presidents. And, you know, many different laws passed to kind of protect people who would engage in corruption. So it's, it's something that has been on the political radar for, for many years now. Uh, it's something that mobilizes people. It's something that people are feel, you know, care very deeply about on a baseline level. It's something that at, at reaches really many sectors of society. Um, so it is really, that's why I say it's no surprise that someone who, you know, as opposed to the other candidates is really from this, emerges from that tradition of being against corruption, of being more with the people that one, but it's also important to point out that, you know, this victory is also historic because it it was almost barely possible to even happen because ahead of these elections, the electoral courts and the electoral commission had essentially been uh, disqualifying candidates following the, the first round of the elections. They actually suspended uh, the legal status of Bernardo Arrevalo's party, the Movimiento Semilla, so many different irregularities to essentially just try to desperately stop um, anything that's remotely progressive from even being able to contest the elections. Because as I said, I mean, the contradiction of the, the difference between who's governing and who is actually the population is so big that they know nobody's going to want to continue voting for them because there's, you know, they haven't, these elites who, again, have no identification with the masses have done nothing for the people um, and it, they, they can't kind of keep feeding off of the company coffer, the state coffer for that long, do nothing and then expect to win. And that's exactly what happened is that you have someone who is not from this, who is saying that he's going to fight against this. Um, and of course, he was the person who won in these elections. And again, with a lot of struggle, with a lot of uh, mobilization by, by the people defending his candidacy, going out and denouncing these uh, moves and these maneuvers by the Electoral Commission to try to eliminate all possibilities of a people's candidate. I want to ask you in particular how the U.S. government has been looking at, uh, at, at this election result, because certainly across Central and South America, the U.S. government is no stranger to coups and, you know, overthrowing, you know, legitimately elected governments and fomenting civil wars. Of course, Guatemala is well aware of that history. PB Success uh, was the code name of the, the covert operation that the CIA ran that overthrew the, the president in 1954 and really, you know, ended the, the Guatemalan revolution and, you know, installed a, a military-backed dictatorship that the U.S. fully supported on behalf, effectively, of United Fruit Company, but also as part of the struggle, you know, against communism that the U.S. was waging, and, and Dwight Eisenhower was, you know, at the forefront of it at that time. So how, how is the U.S. looking at, you know, at this election and, and at, at, you know, that general, the general movement uh, in, in Guatemala? I think this is a question that we've come up that has come up in the past several years, especially with this wave of kind of progressive center-left victories. 
Um, and I think the U.S. is, of course, having to reorient their strategy because, for example, with the case of Guatemala, because the economic crisis and the amount of corruption that was happening there was so dire, you know, Guatemalans are one of the largest populations of people who migrate. And that both causes an issue for the United States. Also, it, of course, not to not go into the whole labor, uh, undocumented labor question in the United States, but you know, you have Kalala Harris going to Guatemala and saying, do not come here, do not migrate. And so they, they're stuck with this situation where when you have governments like Jimmy Morales, Alejandro Giamate, uh, when you have Honduran politicians like Juan Orlando Hernandez, who are so brazen and outright, just completely backwards in their in their policies in terms of economics and their in their policies in terms of human rights, who create such deep crises in their countries that tens of thousands of people are just uh, fleeing because they don't have a future. Um, that's also not very beneficial for the United States. Um, <laughs> so I think it, it's it's this interesting predicament they're left with where they realize that kind of the way that they were doing things, putting and propping up these people who are just so brazen and against all sort, any semblance of democracy and any semblance of economic justice, that they realize that maybe that's not the best path. And I think they're, I think what's, you know, it's something to really, keep an eye on is the way that the U.S. is reorienting in the face of a new political map in the region, because we're no longer just talking about one country here, one country there. We're talking about the majority of Latin America and the Caribbean having governments that are progressive or center-left. And, you know, that gives a certain amount of strength, but I think we also have to say that they're differentiated, of course, from Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. The U.S. is also trying very, very hard to kind of um, separate them from the rest and continue insisting that these are dictatorships, et cetera, et cetera. I think it we it kind of is a wait and see thing. How are they going to reorient their policy? How are they going to continue um, having these economic exceptions? How are they going to continue uh, being able to exploit the labor, being able to exploit the exportation of raw materials? How in I think with Bernardo Arevalo, he doesn't have necessarily such a radical economic policy. And I think stopping corruption, of course, it will remain to be seen how this is going to affect U.S. interests in the country. But I think the U.S. is at is at a place where it has to say, okay, this isn't really working anymore. So I think they're they're reorienting and, and seeing how to kind of approach these governments and somehow maintain their 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 control there. Yeah, no, Zoe, I think that's a really important point that you've made here just uh, about kind of the the gradation of the left in Latin America. I, I think that, you know, especially as people on the left here in the U.S., we have to watch the growing tides of what's happening in Latin America, because I think whether we're talking about Argentina and this rise of libertarianism, which speaks to something that I think is, is very familiar here in the United States, actually, the desire for votes. I mean, I talked to many people here in the U.S. who voted for Trump and just said, well, I just wanted to see a change. It's kind of an FU vote to the, the powers that be. Like there's kind of an understanding or a, a knowledge that Donald Trump feels like an outsider, even though we know he's not as a billionaire. But nonetheless, I, I really feel as though it, it speaks to uh, where a lot of people are just kind of politically and, and the kind of disaffection that is growing and it's interesting to see how these things play out in Latin America because we can see so much of of the mirrored in the U.S. I mean, the reality is that North America um, is part of the Americas. There's South America, there's Central America, and there's North America, and we are all united in, in a lot of on a lot of different fronts, a lot of different kind of political trends and waves that we all experience in different ways. Of course, because of the, the legacy of colonialism and the long, the completely different history that central and the rest of Latin America, that Latin America experiences. But nonetheless, I, I do think that there's some lessons that we can draw here. And seeing the rising tides of the left also gives a lot of hope. And the kind of the, the coverage we've done also here on the protests in Peru, which have not stopped. There has been quite a relentless mass protest in Peru demanding that this coup government in Peru finally get ousted um, as they are meant to be and have the will of the people be heard. So I, I think the popular movements in Latin America have a lot to teach us, as well as the left governments, or even this idea that there's an anti-corruption candidate. I can imagine that that really popping off 
in the U.S. I mean, that's not even necessarily like the, the most radical statement by, by any stretch. But for where politics are currently here, it kind of does feel radical to imagine, you know, even a Bernie Sanders type sans the socialism of just a politician you can kind of trust has one particular track record and doesn't take billions of dollars cumulatively um, from all these different organizations and from companies. Like, I can see that really taking off in that same kind of landslide way, to be honest. But Chris, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Well, I was just thinking that's why, you know, drain the swamp was such a popular slogan for Trump for a while, you know, because people know that something's dirty in Washington. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, they got sucked into, you know, supporting Trump. I, I, I want to really thank Zoe, too, for your the, the way you explain the the Argentine situation and, and all of that. And I, I think we need to we didn't get get to get into it as much as I, I was hoping. But we have to make sure that. We, we make anti-imperialism the watchword in particular in these kinds of situations, because whether it's, you know, the U.S. government, uh, you know, partnering potentially with this far right libertarian to make the dollar the currency uh, or, you know, the U.S. government overthrowing governments in Latin America, which, you, of course, as I, I mentioned earlier, has uh, there's a long history there from, you know, Venezuela to Guatemala, to, you know, across the the you know, across all of Central and South America. We have to make sure that whether or not a, a government is left enough for, you know, us personally or whatever it is, we have to make sure that we are standing firmly against the U.S. government using overt and covert methods to overthrow uh, democratically elected governments. It is not the United States' business, and it never ends well for the countries involved. We can you know, look at the coup attempts in Venezuela. We can look at Guatemala. We can look at Chile and so many, so many more e examples out there. But we are going to have to leave it right there. We have been joined by Zoe Pepper Cunningham, co-editor of People's Dispatch. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. If you like what you heard today and you want to support independent journalism, go to patreon.com slash covert action magazine and become a patron. We can only do this show with the support of our listeners. So if you do want to hear more, be sure to go to the Patreon to support. You've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin with Chris Garaffa and Rachel Hu. Covert Action Bulletin is the official show of Covert Action Magazine and brought to you by way of WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio in New York. If you miss any of our episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you can find podcasts by searching for Covert Action Bulletin or listen on your station's archives. We're all out of time for today. Thanks for listening to Covert Action Bulletin. Covert Action.